in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Let me ask you guys this question. Does a person do his duty, or in the Hindu term, his dharma, even if it causes harm to the people he loves? Or should he neglect his dharma, his calling, his duty, uh, in order to act out of pity and fear of causing harm? Uh, So if you guys are new with us or if you missed the last week or two, we are doing a Jesus Among the World Religions series, which is certainly a bit different uh, for our church or really for any church. And that's why we're going to be looking extensively today at a story that comes not from the Bible, but from the Bhagavad Gita, which is famous Hindu scripture. Um, So the Bhagavad Gita, who has heard this term before? Okay, you know, that's actually more than I was expecting. It is the most famous Hindu scripture uh, by far. It used to lay on Gandhi's night table. He would regularly look to it for inspiration. Uh, It's just one small part of what's called the Mahabharata, which is like the whole Hindu canon, which is actually four times longer than the Bible. So as you can imagine, since the Bible is not very short and the Hindu scriptures are four times as long, uh, not many people actually read the whole thing except for Hindu scholars. But um, there are these famous loved, you know, beloved sections. And the most famous, the most beloved part is the Bhagavad Gita. So just like in the Bible, you know, people might have a favorite gospel like Matthew or Luke or John or something or Romans, and they might read that 20 or 30 times for every time they get around to say Habakkuk or one of the minor prophets. Uh, And though maybe it shouldn't be that way, it often shakes out that way. And in the same way, the Bhagavad Gita is that for the Hindus. It's the one that gets read a lot. So uh, it opens, it's kind of a cool Hollywood epic opening. Uh, think of this. So you, it opens on a kind of vast open plain, and you've got two competing armies that are both facing off. And in the middle is our main character named Arjuna. And on both sides, scholars actually estimate, this comes from a real battle, uh, scholars estimate that it might have been one of the most deadly battles in world history up to that point. And so this main character, Arjuna, is a great warrior, and he is the older brother, or sorry, his older brother is the rightful king by lineage, but through some kind of political intrigue and some messy family dynamics in previous generations, another part of his family has taken the throne. So he's in this difficult situation where he is trying to fight for his older brother who has a proper claim to the the kingship, uh, but he's looking across at the other side of the battlefield against all of his own relatives, his cousins, his trainers, his uncles, and he's struggling with, do I fight in this battle? and potentially kill some of my own, own relatives. So a bit more about this character, Arjuna. He's a kind of uh, Achilles or a Goliath-type like character, or Hector. You kind of pick your hero. He is a great warrior of India. He's this great archer. I think of, uh, who's that archer in the Lord of the Rings series who just like slays people left and right? You, anyone? Legolas, thank you, yeah. Uh, he's, like a, he's like that kind of a character mixed with like Rambo, right? He's like that kind of idea in, uh, <laughs> in Indian lore. And so, but he's really struggling here because he's like, all right, I have this dharma, this calling, this duty to fight in this war. He's a kshatriya, which means he's warrior caste. So he's born into the warrior caste. And for them, it's kind of strange for us to think about this now, but to be born in the warrior caste means you ought to find a just war to fight. Uh, But he's really struggling with this. And uh, it may be hard for us to understand this, but, you know, in the same way, the knights in European tradition often thought that their life was wasted if they didn't find a good, holy, you know, just war 
to fight in. And so in the same way, Arjuna has this sense that he needs to find a righteous war to fulfill his destiny as a warrior caste person. Uh, but he's looking across the battle lines at his own family, thinking, do I have to kill my own family to, to fulfill my destiny? And so, uh, like I said, he's looking across the battle line. He sees his trainer, his uncles, his cousins, his masters. How can he kill them? And so then that's the central dilemma of the Bhagavad Gita that I opened on. Do you do your duty, your calling, even if it causes harm to the people you love, or do you neglect your calling or dharma uh, and then act instead out of a kind of weak uh, fear of causing harm to others? So he turns to his charioteer. So think of it, he's this master warrior and he's got somebody driving his chariot in front of him. And he turns to him and his name is Krishna. And he's basically despondent. So we're gonna read a little bit of this, see if I can do this while holding the mic. So what he says to his charioteer, he says, this is a great sin. <clears throat> we are prepared to kill our own relations out of greed for the pleasures of a kingdom. Better for me if the sons of the other ruler, I won't say it here, uh, weapons in hand, were to attack me in battle and kill me unarmed and unresisting. So he's saying, what a sin here. We're ready to kill our own family in order to inherit a kingdom. It would be better if I were to be killed unarmed here in terms of his karma, which we talked about last week. And so what's interesting here is that there's a moment when someone is considering violence in the New Testament, and Jesus has a kind of similar opportunity, not the same, but maybe a similar subject. When Judas comes to Jesus and the disciples in the garden, when Judas is betraying him, Jesus has this line. He says, do what you came for, friend. And then the men that Judas brought stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus's companions, who we know from another gospel is Peter, one of Jesus's companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So this is in the New Testament, just one example of violence that we have. Here somebody is about to destroy the ministry of Jesus in a sense, or at least they think they are. And Jesus, rather than saying, yes, let's have this holy war, says, put your sword back in its place, right? For those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who draw the sword will die by the sword. Now notice how different the charioteer's advice is. Krishna, the charioteer, says this. We're going to be jumping around a bit. We are now in chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita, which people say... If you lost the entire book of it, but you had chapter two, you would have enough. It's kind of the overall summary of the overall teaching. So I'm going to read a few different selections from chapter two of the Gita. This is Krishna's advice to the warrior, Arjuna. He says, This despair and weakness in a time of crisis are mean and unworthy of you, Arjuna. Okay, I forgot to say this. When Arjuna is kind of complaining, like, I don't know what to do here, he famously sits down cross-legged right in the, like, the base of his chariot, right in the middle of the battlefield. So imagine you've got tens of thousands of warriors on either side, and Arjuna's right in the middle with his chariot. He's like the lone soul that's out there. He's kind of taking stock of the enemy troops, and he just sits down in his chariot. So that's the, the backdrop to what Krishna is saying now. He's saying, this despair and meekness in a time of crisis are mean and unworthy of you, Arjuna. How have you fallen into a state so far from the path to liberation? It does not become you to yield to this weakness. Arise with a brave heart and destroy the enemy. So keep that in mind with what we just talked about from Jesus. All right, I'm going to skip ahead to verse 11. 
Krishna goes on. He says, he's responding to Arjuna. You speak sincerely, but your sorrow has no cause. The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. There has never been a time when you and I and the kings gathered here have not existed, nor will there be a time when we will cease to exist. As the same person inhabits the body through childhood, youth, and old age, so too, at the time of death, he attains another body. The wise are not deluded by these changes. So here you're seeing this doctrine of reincarnation and just people just die and they come back to life in a different form. So he's saying, don't worry so much about killing because these people are going to die and then come back in a different form. Let me skip a little bit more. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I wanted to read some selections here. The body is mortal, but that which dwells in the body is immortal and immeasurable. Therefore, Arjuna, fight in this battle. One believes he is the slayer, another believes he is the slain. Both are ignorant. There is neither slayer nor slain. You were never born, you will never die. You have never changed. You can never change. Unborn, eternal, immutable, immemorial, you do not die when the body dies. All right, then one more passage. This book is actually pretty short. This, it looks somewhat thick, but the text is very, uh, <laughs> the margins and the spacing is very generous. So if you ever wanted to read this out of curiosity, it probably, you could probably do it in an afternoon. Let's see, verse 31 to 33 says, Considering your dharma, remember your calling, your will, your destiny, you should not vacillate. For a warrior, nothing is higher than a war against evil. The warrior confronted with such a war should be pleased, Arjuna, for it comes as an open gate to heaven. But if you do not participate in this battle against evil, you will incur sin, violating your dharma and your honor. Okay, I'll stop reading from there. Okay, so that's a bit of a culture shock, right? When you've come from Christian scriptures and you're used to reading in our tradition, that's a bit of a shock, right? That you're calling your dharma is as a warrior. You are the warrior caste. So what could be better than to fight and to kill as a part of your calling, your righteous cause? As for killing, don't really worry, you know, because you're not actually killing this sage says. He says, you were never born. You will never die. You've never changed. Uh, you can never change. Unborn, eternal, immutable, immemorial. You do not die when the body dies. So he's like, rise up and fight. Uh, be the Indian Achilles, the Goliath, the Hector. And sure, you're going to end up killing a lot of people that you love, but that is your dharma, he says. And you're not actually killing them. Just remember that they'll take off the cloak of this life and they'll be reborn again. They'll put on a different jacket, a different cloak next time, like we talked about last week. Now, this sounds a bit rough. Uh, there's actually a lot, <laughs> if, if that's all you heard about this, it would sound pretty rough. Uh, but there's actually a lot of underlining in here. There is a lot of gold. We talk about mining gold from other religions uh, where there is truth. It's, it's good to find the truth and beauty there. And I'm not trying to cherry pick here. It, I'm not just trying to pick a, a, a hard example for us to hear. This is really this, the foundation of the Bhagavad Gita, but there is a lot of good wisdom there as well. Um, so the culture shock comes that this is kind of the opposite of what the New Testament teaches. So think of this. Let me read this passage uh, from Jesus in Matthew 25, I think it is. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. So in scripture, we have this sense that when there are people around us who are suffering and we help them, that you are somehow doing that service directly unto Jesus or unto God, because God takes this human form. He takes on our humility and our weakness. And so when we serve the humble and the weak, in a sense, there's a way in which we are directly serving the Lord. But what's interesting here is the Bhagavad Gita says, it's not that what you do for others, you do for God. It's saying that what you do for others, you're not really doing anyway. Whether you kill them or serve them, you're not really doing it anyway. Save, feed, kill. You cannot really change them and you cannot really change yourself. You can't really change. All you can do is fulfill your dharma, fulfill your calling. The Bible says, uh, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So notice the difference here that the Bhagavad Gita is saying, what you do doesn't really change anything or matter because we're in this constant, eternal, cyclical cycle that goes on ever repeating. But the Bible says, do everything that you do as if a service unto God himself, as if it will make a difference. It will make a change. So just like the biblical wisdom books, think of Job. When you think of the plot of Job, it's like a 40-some chapter book, but the plot of Job takes place entirely from chapters one and two, and then like the last one or two chapters but it serves up as kind of, I think of it as a golf tee, right? Is that what you call it? The little wood thing you put in the, in the grass, you know, and then, then that's what the, <laughs> you can tell I'm a golfer. I'm somehow, I'm 35, and I've never golfed like on the real golf course in my life, which seems kind of crazy. Uh, so one of you guys can invite me and, and, and you know, hum, humble me. Um, but you put the tee down, right? And then you drive the ball from that. And in the same way, a lot of wisdom literature has the same thing. It has a kind of plot device in the beginning, a narrative to hook you like, wow, here's this awesome battle, this sort of Indian Achilles this sounds really cool. And then it's like, but hey, now we're talking about wisdom for the next 40 chapters. Uh, so Job hooks you on this narrative plot. What's going to happen to Job? But then for 40 chapters, you essentially get a philosophical sort of wisdom discourse. And the Bhagavad Gita does the same thing, that you start with this plot, but then the rest of it kind of goes into a philosophical territory. And frankly, territory that this soldier on the battlefield would not be talking about anymore. Like you get this full philosophical like discourse and sermon all about the meaning of life and, you know, everything, right? But it's sort of this narrative hook to get you in. Um, but the big surprise, the reveal in the plot, it does every once in a while jump back into plot. And the big surprise is in chapter seven or eight, this lowly philosophical instructor, this chariot driver in front of him appears more and more wise as the time goes on. And then it turns out that he is Vishnu incarnated as Krishna. So Vishnu is, depending on which Hindu you ask, he's either the highest god or the second highest god in sort of the Hindu pantheon. And it turns out this charioteer Krishna, who seems like just this lowly sort of servant, is actually Vishnu incarnate. And he takes on flesh in order to communicate truth with our hero, Arjuna. And the book ends, you don't actually get to the battle in the book, it's just all the wisdom, but the book ends with Arjuna finally submitting fully to this wisdom. And then, of course, this really long Hindu scripture goes on later to depict all of just like the pure slaying, you know, and all the, all the battle that follows. Um, let's see here. <laughs> I like the uh, Legolas Rambo idea here. I'm going to hold on to that for if I ever talk about this again. Um, so 
though Hinduism may seem really strange and other, especially if you just start reading about it or if you Google you know, pictures and look at the temples, it's not in, it really that different in some, in some manner. So they too believe in a supreme being, a complete other, they call it Brahman. It's this all-powerful God who is other and set apart. Now we believe that God is also completely other and set apart, but that he made himself known to us, that he translated himself into human flesh, like an author writing themselves into their own story. I know I've said this before, but I think it's one of the purest examples of how Jesus took on flesh is that Jesus had to empty, so this is hard to talk about it, that in Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus somehow emptied himself of something in order to come down to us. He's still fully God, but he's also emptied of something. So it's really hard to talk about that without, without making him seem like he's less than. He's not less than, but he did give up something in order to take on human form and humble himself like that. And I've heard it described as an author writing themselves into their own story, right? So the author can be outside of a book and can write themselves fully into the book, but it's not their, it's not their wholeness and fullness. It's somehow their fullness within the rules of the book, right? So if you're writing a memoir or an autobiography or something, you're writing your story in, in the book. And within the confines of the book, which is a, somehow it's a diminishment of f- the fullness of life, right? It's, it's on the page. It's somehow less than. You can still be fully represented on the page in fairness within the rules of the book, right? So this is the idea that, that God is completely other, but that he made himself known to us by translating himself into human flesh. He sort of wrote himself into his creation, just like an author can write themselves into their own story. Now, Hindus don't exactly believe this, but they believe something like it. They believe in, I didn't know that this word, before I studied world religions, I didn't know that this word came from this, but they believe in what's called avatars. Now, coming of age when I did, I learned the term avatar through like the movie or TV shows or something, right? Uh, Not that I like the movie, but that's where I learned the term. Um, So they believe in what's called avatars, which their one God or highest gods descend in the form of humans as well. Their highest gods can also take on human flesh. And so if you know a Hindu or are ever in conversation with a Hindu, you can encourage them as a kind of bridge for dialogue. I'm not saying this is pure, appropriate theology all the way through, but sometimes you have to find a bridge to even get into these conversations that you can encourage them to think on Jesus as a kind of translation, a kind of avatar of God. Now, you don't end there. I'm not saying that that's where you end, but you can start the conversation in that direction. So Hindus, because they have so many gods, right? We said 330 million uh, last time. In in actuality, it's probably somewhere between 30 and 60 uh, that are known. But they don't find Jesus to be a threat because they have so many gods already. It's like, well, what's the problem with one more? So many Hindus are known to call out to their gods when they're in trouble. And if that doesn't work, they will then call out to Jesus as well. And that's one of the number, re- number one uh, ways that Hindus become Christians because they will call out to Christ when they run out of other options and Christ will seemingly you know, show up and answer. So if you can approach this with friends or, or loved ones or anyone you know, colleagues at work who is a Hindu, if you can approach this concept of Jesus as a kind of avatar, you know, like, hey, you guys, you know, you read the Bhagavad Gita, you believe that Vishnu can appear in human flesh as Krishna. What do you think about God sending himself as his son in the form of Jesus? Now, again, it's not exactly the same concept, but you can see how close that is. You can see just how close, like there's other, other faiths, like uh, Muslims would just be absolutely just terrified and offended if you mention any sense of Allah, like taking on human flesh. They're like, absolutely not. Get out of here. I don't want to hear from you again. But a Hindu is like, well, yeah, we... That happens a lot in our 
in our scriptures. And so that's a bridge. I just want to provide you with an actual way of opening into conversation with a Hindu friend or colleague. But the difference is that their avatars, a Hindu avatar, is meant to lead you toward what they call moksha, which is liberation, to help you get free of this eternal cycle of being born and dying and rebirth and born and dying. Their avatars are trying to help you to get free as if this life is something to escape from. That true freedom is to get out of this earth, right? To get out of this cycle. But no, the Bible teaches that life is a gift. It's beautiful, but it is also fallen. It's beautiful, but it's also scarred. And Jesus, it says, came not just to save us, but he also came to restore creation itself. And he came to restore you. Jesus incarnated himself. He took on flesh, not to sweep you out of here and to save you from this life and this cycle, but to make you fully human and fully in the image of God in you. We are not trying to get out, but we remember we're kind of already and not yet home. We remember that our citizenship is in heaven. But this is something that the church has really missed, especially in the last 100, 150 years, is that we've really bought into this dualism idea, right? That we have a body and we have a soul. And when we die, we just go into like cloud land and that's where heaven is. But scripture is really clear on this, is that heaven, even if there is a time that we are with the Lord, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth will be this earth, right? The new heavens and the new earth will be here, even though it will be perfected and remade. So we remember that our citizenship is in heaven, but guess what? That's here. We will be here in a kind of perfected and remade earth. So God becomes man, not to help you escape this, but to redeem you and to redeem creation itself and to help you to identify with this place, that this will be our home. This will be where we make our roots in our life, even though it will be perfected and remade. Vishnu came to tell Arjuna to kill because that's his lot in life. That was his dharma. And because we're just going around and around in a circle and what you do, what you do doesn't really matter. Kill Arjuna because it doesn't really matter. We're just going to keep going round and around the merry-go-round. God became man, not just in a story, like the, the Hindus will fully admit, this isn't real history, that's just a story. Um, but God became man, not just in a story, but for real as Jesus Vishnu, as Krishna said, it's okay, you can kill because we're just in this for eternity. But Jesus said, it's okay, I'll be killed to bring you to me for eternity. Hindu scriptures, Vishnu comes and says, it's okay, you can kill because we're just going around and around. But Jesus says, no, it's okay, I will be killed so that you can be with me for eternity. And this is the great difference in this concept of God becoming man in the two faiths. Uh, let me pray to close us, and I invite you guys down to enjoy some refreshments and fellowship afterward. Father, we thank you for um, this example, this, this, um, uh, this experience, this opportunity to learn and to test ourselves and our belief against great teachings from uh, other people around the world. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember these things. Should we uh, have Hindu colleagues, Hindu friends, that we'd be able to lovingly and respectingly open in these conversations and these sort of bridges for dialogue, using these concepts of avatar, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, this sort of Krishna, and, and um, this is, is Vishnu appearing as Krishna story. And we thank you, Lord, that we have a truer, and purer, and better good news that you became man in order to, not to zap us out of here, but to help us to find our home here, that you became man to make us uh, more fully human, 
and that you, in the end, died for us as well to bring us to you for eternity. Uh, we thank you for this goodness, for this grace. Uh, we pray now that you be with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.